Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well. I'm glad to be talking about movies with friends. Up first in controversies and controversies, the popcorn dividend is real. AMC is offering retail investors who purchase and hold on to shares of AMC stock free popcorn. A nice PR move, but not necessarily great investment advice. I mean, after all, a large popcorn runs you, what, 10, maybe maybe $15 at AMC. I don't know. I, I don't really buy popcorn. Um, and a share of the stock is going for, hold on, let me, let me check my phone. Boop, boop, boop. Five times that. Crazy. Uh, I want to reiterate that nothing you hear in this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Please don't take my advice. If I were a savvy investor, I would have bought $500 of shares, uh, $500 worth of AMC when it was $2 a share, a move that would have paid off almost $17,000 at one point last week when AMC spiked to $70 a share. Um, But getting into the AMC business right now, from my admittedly amateurish perspective, seems a little bit foolhardy. Uh, And that's in part because AMC is playing the stock spike very smartly for AMC. They're offering overpriced shares to big money investors at a discount, uh, and those big money investors immediately dump them into the market at market value, helping AMC pay down its massive debt while also earning a quick payday for the big money guys. Who gets screwed? Well, probably the people earning that popcorn dividend. AMC was undervalued at $2. It was probably pretty close to properly valued at $10, and it is super overvalued at $50, to say nothing of $60, $70, however high it's going. Um, That is not to say that it'll come down to $10 a share again anytime soon, Um, but it's more likely to do that than to keep spiking, especially if AMC keeps using this big bounce to uh, pare down its debt. Granted, there are limits to how often AMC can actually do that, with play this little debt game. Um, according to Matt Levin, the AMC charter only allows another 24 million or so shares to be offered. Um, but still, that's a lot of shares and that's a lot of money that's going to get lost by a lot of folks dabbling on Robin Hood. Peter, is this an efficient allocation of capitalism's resources or is Bernie right? I don't know. It seems fine to me. <laughs> like, I, I'm not saying I recommend buying AMC stocks, uh, you know, not when, when you could be buying GameStop. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true. That's where the real that's where the value is. But who doesn't love free popcorn? Free popcorn is great. It's delicious. Movie theater popcorn is so wonderful. Movie theater popcorn is fine. The only really great thing to eat during a movie screening is a refrigerated box of Junior Mints. I mean, I think this, you know, this just sort of is a reminder that you should never underestimate the appeal of like a good, cheap gimmick, right? So like uh, Happy Meals for years were sold based on, maybe they still are, were sold like not so much based on the food, but on like the toy box and the, the, the interesting toy that was inside them. I remember as a kid, I was super excited for my parents to pay like six bucks, maybe that at that point it was like $3 for a Happy Meal. And inside was a 25 cent toy. Uh, so, you know, it, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a, the, the most efficient way to buy toys, but it was a fun experience, right? They have changed the, like by doing this, they changed the stock buying experience in the same way that McDonald's Happy Meals changed the, uh, the taking your kid to McDonald's experience. Yeah, but that, I mean, there, 
yes, I understand your point here, except for the fact that, you know, there's there's a little bit of a difference between, okay, here's a toy that is slightly overpriced and you get to keep the toy and everybody comes to McDonald's and the kid doesn't cry and being like, here's an investment opportunity. And granted, AMC is like very smartly putting in all of its prospectuses. You're probably going to lose all your money. Like if you buy this for the popcorn, you're going to lose a lot of, whole lot of cash and we're going to, we're going to get rich and the hedge fund guys are going to get rich, but you, Robin Hood investors, probably not going to get rich. Alyssa, please talk talk some sense into our, our narco-capitalist friend over here. I mean, look, I think it's probably a healthy thing if this, you know, if AMC's ability to play this ends up kind of quashing the whole idea of meme stocks. It's It's not a good situation. People should not be trading individual stocks if they don't really know what they're doing. And most people, especially individual retail investors, do not really know what they're doing. Um, And certainly no one should be retail investing with money that they can't afford to lose. Um, And so if AMC's ability to game, you know, these kinds of crazes and memification of stocks ends up sending the clear message that, you know, the big financial institutions are pretty quick to adapt and find ways to win in these circumstances and that this is maybe not the greatest way to launch your anti-capitalist uprising or to, you know, make GameStop worth a bunch of money, that is probably a good thing long-term for the individual retail investor. So, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Alyssa, in terms of, you know, that's sort of just good, sensible, like basic financial advice, which is that if you're trying to make money, don't place what are effectively bets on individual stocks that you don't understand, where I think I would sort of depart from you is just, you know, the the point that I've made here uh, on this podcast before, which is that I think a lot of people who are buying meme stocks and know they are buying meme stocks are not really playing to make money. Now, if they make money, it's great and they're happy to do so. And some people certainly are playing to make money. I, I don't want to say that zero people are, are, are playing to, to try to get rich here, but a lot of people are playing for amusement in the same way that people go to Las Vegas and lose money intentionally. They go and they're yeah. going to lose... 100 or 200 or $1,000 over the course of a weekend, and they know that they're going to lose it up front, but they are going to enjoy the losing of it because it is part of a game, part of an entertainment experience. And so what AMC is doing is leaning into the idea that losing money on game stunks is an entertainment experience. And hey, just like you can get a free drink at the blackjack table if you play for long enough, you can get some free popcorn if you buy AMC stock. Yeah, I mean, my 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 pushback on this is that I am worried. Uh, I mean, look, this is AMC's business; they can do what they want. Fine. Um, what worries me a little bit uh, is AMC doing this in a way that radicalizes people against AMC and movie theaters in general. Frankly, I mean, if you if you have a situation where you are uh, encouraging lots and lots of people to buy stocks. And these are the people who like movie theaters and they go to movie theaters and they get the popcorn and and they're they're all happy because they're, you know, part owners of AMC, right? Um, and then those people all lose a bunch of money. 
uh, because AMC is intentionally doing this in a way that will cause them to lose money. I, I again, what what is the backlash going to be here against theaters? Which again, I I I enjoy theaters. I would rather n- not see theaters go away. And AMC is the biggest theater chain in the country in the world. Uh, so you know the the they're they're playing with fire here. I think is 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 one concern I have. Possibly they are, but I I guess I would just go back to the casino example. Um, and look, I I should also say I'm not a gambler. I don't gamble. I don't enjoy it personally, but I think it's fine if people like it. And I know plenty of people who are reasonable people who like gambling. Um, when gamblers lose money, they don't think, oh, my goodness, we, we just have to shut down the Paris casino in Las Vegas or, or whatever it is. Right. The, the wind just has to go. Um, what does sometimes happen, though, is that there is a political reaction. And when this when we st- first started seeing game stonks and meme stocks become a thing, you had folks like Elizabeth Warren say, look, maybe we need to regulate this. Maybe this is a problem. It wasn't at all clear what Warren uh, actually wanted to do or what a solution even would be to this sort of thing. Um, but I, I guess I, I don't fear a I don't fear a big backlash from investors. I do think there is um, some political risk to to this sort of uh, uh, to this sort of speculation and this sort of um, what is going to be perceived as intentional manipulation of the stock market, uh, and that the political risk is real. Um, but I just don't. I don't think there's that much uh, risk from backlash from people who are, in many cases, maybe even more, uh, maybe even the plurality of cases. Um, playing for amusement because they think this is a game. Yeah, and I think it's probably just hard to tell what percentage of people are doing this for what reasons. Um, yep, this is, I agree this with is, that. This is not sort of a well-established leisure time activity, um, and it is hard to tell what the motivations of people who hang out on a Reddit message board and talk about stocks as if they're chicken tenders, like what their motivations are or how they're thinking things through. Like this is all just very new behavior. Um, and it is it is hard for me to see it lasting a really long time or becoming a really big thing. I could be wrong about that. But, um, you know, I mean, clearly there have been stories about people who use were using the Robinhood app in particular to trade um stocks and who got sort of misleading messages about what was actually happening with um, with some of their more complicated investments. I mean, I think this is a, it's weird, volatile moment, and it's really hard to take too much away from what's happening, in part because I think it won't last very long. Yeah, well, I mean, that is, that is true. I do think that this uh, little fad slash craze will come to an end sooner rather than later. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that AMC is offering people popcorn to buy stocks? Peter? I think it's hilarious. Um, I, it's This whole thing is in some sense controversial because it upsets people, but it shouldn't be. It's People are going to do whatever they're going to do. Alyssa? I think it's controversial. AMC is having a rational and even somewhat clever response to a ridiculous situation. Um, I think it's controversial, honestly. I, I really think we are underestimating the risk of backlash against AMC for this. I, I do think that the, a lot of people are going to lose a fair amount of money, and then AMC is going to be like, well, you got your popcorn, and then that's not going to help the cause of movie theaters at all. Uh, all right. Um, 
If you enjoy this show, and who doesn't, it's great, even if we don't send you free popcorn, uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we will have a bonus members-only episode about movies that represent the cities in which they are shot the best. Uh, and the New York City mayoral candidates had trouble coming up with their favorite movie that's set in the city that never sleeps. Uh, what would you pick for your favorite city? We'll, we'll, we'll make our picks. You guys can make yours in the comments. It'll be great. Uh, and now on to the main event. The Woman in the Window, uh, a magnificently trashy piece of cinematic entertainment starring Amy Adams as the titular windowed woodum, uh, woman, an agoraphobic who stares out into neighboring NYC brownstones in lieu of getting on with her life. Um, this film has a cast to die for. It's got Amy Adams. It's got Gary Oldman. It's got Julianne Moore. It's got Jennifer Jason Leigh. Uh, it's got Anthony Mackie. Um, and it has one of my favorite new fresh faces, Wyatt Russell. Uh, and it's got a high-toned director in Joe Wright who has obvious visual skill. It's got an honest-to-God playwright uh, as Tracy in Tracy Letts as the screenwriter. Um, and yet, it is either objectively bad or so bad that it's good, which is to say camp. Um, but it is definitely not good in the traditional sense. Uh, it's goofy and arch. Adams is as over-the-top as I have ever seen her, even more so than in uh, Hillbilly Elegy, I think. Um, and Gary Oldman is let off the leash for a vintage bit of scenery chewing. Um, and the, the visual style that Wright employs here is less an homage to Hitchcock than an homage to Brian De Palma doing Hitchcock, which is a very different sort of thing. Um, the plot is relatively simple. The agoraphobic Amy Adams sees a murder committed in the newly occupied house across the street. Or did she? Uh, the supposedly murdered woman is very much alive, and Adams is very much not well on a variety of meds uh, that are mixed with booze, and uh, he's, she's taking a, a special interest in a young man who has moved in across the street, uh, and, you know, that guy's mother was murdered, or maybe she wasn't, or maybe, I don't know, who knows? Um, who can say? The Woman in the Window was kind of interesting as a piece of lockdown cinema, even if it was made well before COVID, was even a thing. Uh, it was sold to Netflix after its original distri distributor had no idea what to do with it, both because of COVID and also, you know, just because of the movie. Um, and as far as lockdown art goes, Bo Burnham's Inside, uh, which is also on Netflix, might be a better option for you. We discussed this a little bit before the show got started. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about it uh, later on in this segment, Alyssa. Um, but both do have this kind of interesting idea at the core of them, a sort of inability to know who we really are without the intermediating effect of other people left to our own devices uh, and glued to our own electronic devices, we all go a little mad sometimes, don't we, Alyssa? Yeah, I think, um, I don't think this is a good movie, and it definitely raises the question to me of just what is going on with Amy Adams' career, because she has gone from being someone who was probably one of my favorite working actresses to someone who has been in a series of movies that I find, like, if not unwatchable, just really bad. Um, this among them. And I, when I say this is really bad, I don't mean that there were no pleasures in it. Um, there are some really, like, nice sort of formally composed shots in this. Um, the use of sort of this red light, the sort of lurid pink of her bedroom, the red of the wine she drinks all the time sort of suffuses the movie with this kind of claustrophobic heat in a way that's quite effective. But yeah, this is this is not a great movie. Um, to put it slightly differently, Sonny, I mean, you're talking about how oh, this and Inside um, argue that you can't really see yourself without interacting with other people. I'd say something a little different, which is that 
they're mo- they're both um, stories about how if you are seeing the world through a very limited vantage point, your perspective on it is necessarily incomplete. And that is sort of literally true in this, in The Woman in the Window, right? I mean, when Anna, uh, Amy Adams' character, thinks she witnesses a murder, she sees the murder framed by both her own window and a couple of windows across the street. She sees a woman, you know, stabbed in one room, falling back into another room, but she doesn't actually see the perpetrator. Um, She does not have just literally a complete window into what is happening in the house across the street. Um, She is, you know, trusting the people who come to her. She is making assumptions that some of those people choose not to debunk. Um, And so she thinks she is seeing clearly, but is seeing in a way that's necessarily very limited. Um, Inside, you know, I don't want to go too much into this because it's only just been released. Peter hasn't seen it yet. But, um, you know, does some similarly Say whatever you want. Interesting I can't thing, be spoiled. Uh, does some similarly interesting things with sort of windows and space, right? I mean, the first thing we see is, you know, this sort of very stark under-furnished room and someone opening a door and letting in this sort of obscuring blast of light. And, you know, if all you can see of the world is what you're seeing looking at a door, looking at a window... Again, that's necessarily going to be limited both by the physical frame of the object you're looking through and the sort of distorting effect of what comes in. Um, there's a set of Venetian blinds in, inside that, um, again, lets in some light. It, you know, the um, the angle on the blinds is changed throughout the series, so you get the sense of seeing sort of more or less of the outside world. Um, but again, it's sort of limited. It's necessarily obscured. Um, and I found the two of them to be sort of an inter- interesting companion pieces um, in suggesting that it's not just that we can't see ourselves without the interventions of other people, but that when we're seeing through these narrowed portals, um, we maybe necessarily go a little nuts. Uh, Peter, you did not care for this movie. You were sending us text messages while you were watching it, uh, kind of in in shock and awe at what you were watching on the screen. This movie is so bad. This movie is so bad. And what's interesting is how bad it manages to be with such obvious talent. But all the talent is, it's not just that there's like good stuff happening over something bad. It's that all of the, 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 the acting is ridiculous. The, I like, I, I, I admit there are some interestingly composed shots, but they're just, they're sort of hyper real and like kind of just way over the top and Absolutely everything about this movie is hacky, manipulative schlock. Like there's there's nothing that I enjoyed about it at all. Even the stuff that is sort of the product of of, of real talent, which is there is real talent uh, at work here, but nothing in this movie actually works on screen. And I think you know, I, I we, you talked about the director, you talked about the actors, you talked about the the screenwriters, Sonny. All of those all all those things are like. Let's is a is a good writer. Uh, Joe Wright is a good director. Amy Adams and Gary Oldman are great actors. Um, the real problem here is that this story is fundamentally ridiculous and unsalvageably stupid. And what we ended up with was was a movie that just sort of couldn't escape the deep deep stupidity of the underlying story. And I just I, I mean it's interestingly terrible at times, but it is terrible. Uh, I I think the only thing I can just say objectively like that I'm thankful for about this movie is that it's an hour and 41 minutes and it didn't overstay its welcome. 
But it's no you, so you you talked about the uh, the dis, the distribution issues and how this ended up with Netflix. Um, it's notable that this movie uh, was initially going to be released in October of 2019 and was delayed for uh, was delayed until May of 2020, which when of course basically no movies got released um, because the test screenings for the initial version of this were apparently just so miserable that they were like we cannot release this in the month that normally a movie like this would be released. This is obviously playing for. The same audience as uh, the Emily Blunt thriller *Girl on the Train*, which is another movie with a uh, you know girl instead of woman in the it's girl on the and it's got a drunk a woman who drinks too much and like blacks out and sees a murder or doesn't or whatever and like the whole story sort of unfurls out of her you know her her drunken blackouts and her uh, you know inability to kind of see the rest of the world properly because of medication I don't know I don't recall if there was medication specifically but all of that sort of thing you know it's sort of melodramatic. Um, uh, thrillers uh, built around a middle-aged female protagonist with um, substance abuse issues, right? And this is just so obviously derivative of that rear window, um, you know, a couple of other things. It's just, it's just a disaster. And, and I, I thought even the, even the way that it was interesting to look at, uh, at times didn't really do anything for me because it felt like such compensation for the fact that everything that we were being told story-wise was so patently absurd. It's not a good thing when Amy Adams gets like impaled in the face with a garden implement and you burst out laughing. <laughs> Literally. It's so absurd. Literally. Literally I, burst. I'm glad that happened to you guys too yeah. because when when that happened, mm-hmm. when that happened in the climax of this movie, I literally guffawed at the screen. Yes. I, I did not feel good about it, but it was incredibly hilarious. Not least because, I mean, it's both shot in an incredibly cheesy close-up, but also Amy Adams is like, I mean, it wasn't clear to me that you could overact in a moment when you are portraying being like stabbed in the face with a garden implement, but she manages to overact in that moment anyway. It's yeah, you're amazing. like, come on, nobody'd really be like that traumatized by it. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it was just the image of the the things going through her face and into her mouth, and you could see it. I was just like, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> no, it made me feel really awful. Um, <laughs> I don't know if either of you have read the amazing. Um, so the New Yorker in 2019 ran a profile of yeah. Dan Mallory, the um, the former literary agent who wrote the woman um, in the the woman in the window under a pen name. Um, and the article is so much more entertaining than the movie because Mallory is clearly just a complete, I mean, like, I don't know if sociopath is the I, right I think word, but like, we probably shouldn't like medically diagnose him on the podcast, but I think it's fair to say that, uh, people who worked with him really believed he had serious issues. Yes. I, I mean, I, I think the technical term, the technical non-diagnostic term for what his deal is, is that he is a piece of work. He is, the guy is apparently completely obsessed with the talented Mr. Ripley and has apparently (laughs) just made up. And like, he's obsessed with the the talented Mr. Ripley, with Patricia Highsmith's sort of Ripley novels, um, and seems to have decided that his path to happiness is best accomplished by becoming a fairly cheap Ripley knockoff himself. Um, Like, 
certainly sub-murder, um, but definitely, like, the cons are not nearly as interesting or glamorous, which sort of makes sense given that The Woman in the Window is fairly transparently a commercial attempt to, um, you know, replicate other more successful works of art in a way that makes its creator an enormous amount of money. Um, and the, it was a bestseller, and it got yeah. optioned off to become a movie with Amy Adams. And so this is actually, I think... You asked, you started, Alyssa, with the, mm-hmm. the correct question here, which is what is going on with Amy Adams' career? And I think in one way, the answer is this looked like a project. Like if you had, if all you had was the, the fact that this was a, a bestseller based on, you know, uh, of the type that is making money when it gets adapted, um, with Joe Wright, with a, with other act- genuinely very good actors attached. If you it's just supposed to be the, her Gone Girl. I mean, yeah. you know, we talked girl, about all these um, other things, and but girl Gone on the Girl. Tra- girl on the Train, which had also, I didn't love the movie, but it did very well. Um, and this was, like I said, this movie was clearly sort of set up to be a spiritual successor to capture the same audience. If you looked at that on paper and looked at that as like a, a package deal that um, it's not completely stupid to think, oh, I, I as a highly paid actress would want to be at the center of this. Um, it's just that the final product was a disaster. Yeah. And and what was her movie before this? Right. It was Hillbilly Elegy, which is another movie that makes a lot of sense on paper, yeah. I think, which is, you know, it's an Oscar bait. Again, uh, I didn't like that movie, but I. I think you can look at the book directed the, by Ron Howard. I mean, with I, Meryl Streep, I, I mean, like, right with the package deal there looks like, oh, this is going to be a high profile project that should both make money and get me awards, accolades, get attention. Right. It just is that Hollywood, I think, I mean, I actually you, you mentioned this in, you know, the context of Bo Burnham's thing. Um, I actually think it's interesting to think about in comparison with Cruella, which is a better movie than this. Um, It's not a great movie, but it is a better movie than this. And it is another film about... um, uh, about a sort of scorned, difficult woman who has who herself has some issues, right? And uh, it's quite stylish, sometimes overly so. The style doesn't quite know what to do with the story that is that the underlying story is kind of a uh, is is just kind of a mess. Um, and I think there's maybe I'm just sort of maybe I'm uh, drawing this conclusion from too few examples, and I'm not remembering something. But it does sort of feel like there's a dearth of really great female lead performances uh, or certain, not performances, excuse me, that I'm not put, meaning to put the blame on the actresses themselves, but of roles, right? And and roles that are sort of carefully put together to just sort of, um, you know, to be these kind of big star-making roles that someone like Amy Adams um, is clearly looking for. And she's just not finding them, even though I think she's taking pack, uh, products that look good, as as movie deals before the film gets made. I, do you think that's true, Alyssa? I felt like last year was actually a pretty good year for Best Actress nominees. I felt like there was a decent, a decent. I mean, you had Frances McDormand and Nomadland, and I did like Frances. You know, she was I mean, I, I like. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I didn't think it was particularly bad, and I mean, it's not like she's made. I mean. You're going to get upset with me, but the answer is actually that she hooked up with Zack Snyder and it's all been downhill from there. Um, I'll let Sonny take that one. uh, Because, you know, I mean, if you look at the year she has in 2016, 
She's in Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Fine. She's in Arrival. She's in, uh, and she's in Nocturnal Animals, um, which is uh, one of Tom Ford's movies. Um, so, I mean, that's great. Too- kind of underrated. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, she's in Justice League. She's in the miniseries of Sharp Objects, which, you know, is okay. Um, But yes, I mean, she has, you know, she's in Vice playing Lynn Cheney, which whatever. And then it's Hillbilly Elegy, you know, the Justice League Snyder Cut, The Woman in the Window. She's got Dear Evan Hansen coming up, which looks terrible. Um, And then, you know, maybe we'll see how she is in the sequel to Enchanted, in which, I mean, she's fantastic in Enchanted, and that's a very unusual role, and it will be interesting to see her, you know, return to that. But, I mean, I think Uh, that— Oh, I didn't realize she was in Dear Evan Hansen. I'm looking at her—that movie, that movie looks like it will cause a rash of, you know— crimes across the country when it's released. Or at least uh, some snarky tweets by Sonny Bunch. Looks, yes. looks terrible. Um, but I actually think, I mean, I it's not necessarily clear to me that there aren't potentially interesting roles for Amy Adams, but I do think she's actually bad in The Woman in the Window and Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and, you know, it's not like The Woman in the Window in particular doesn't have some room for her to underact or, you know, just dominate the screen because in a lot of scenes she's basically there by herself. But, you know, both are roles where she does some overacting. The roles are kind of histrionic. Let me me ask, is this a function of Let's' screenplay? Because she has several scenes that are essentially theater monologues. They are essentially dramatic monologues. I'm thinking specifically of her suicide video, uh, and then the uh, the the moment in the film where she is talking essentially to the camera, and we pan over and we see the crashed car in the uh, in the apartment, you know, with its its wheels spinning. That's another that's another very theatrical monologue to the point where the lights literally kind of dim, and she gets a spotlight on her, and the rest of the characters turn into the audience uh, in a in a theater. So my my question, I guess, would be: Is this simply a function of her? Uh, performing as she might have performed in a theater and that style not working on screen. I don't think so because I actually think she's fairly good in those scenes. And look, I like Tracy Letts. Um, Again, I've seen, you know, I saw August Osage County on Broadway. Um, I've seen, you know, I think he, uh, you know, I think he's a pretty good screenwriter. Um, But no, I think the problem for me with her performance in Woman in the Window is more, you know, again, in that sort of like ridiculous climactic scene in... Um, some of the scenes that actually are supposed to, that have more people in them that are a little more momentum driven, um, in the same way that, you know, the sort of hysterical scenes she plays in Hillbilly Elegy are just feel kind of miscalibrated to me. Um, so no, I, that, that does not feel like the problem to me. That's interesting because I, I like, I actually like those scenes as well, uh, in this movie, the, the kind of direct to the camera scenes, I, I think she's actually, fi- I think she's fine in this. I just think it's like, it's such a, it's, uh, Peter is right that it is not a terribly well plotted movie, which doesn't help with anything. It's not terribly well um, plotted. It's not, it's like, what the hell is the plot of this movie? What is it, uh, like, what is it about? It's about, 
it's about a woman uh, being being subjected to scrutiny by by men in the world and telling her a thing didn't happen when it when it happened. Man, it's about gaslighting. I mean, it That's also relies on Julianne Moore's character just like showing up randomly at her house and being like, "Hi," and not clarifying things when Amy Adams assumes that she's married to someone she's not married to. Like, wow, spoilers. Yeah, Julianne Moore's I mean, character. That second real glass of wine really just. It tells you what's going on in this whole movie here. Apparently. I, I want to defend Amy Adams' uh, career for the last five years. Yeah, because, so if you, you because the alternative is to accept that Zack Snyder did her in. Well, no. I mean, if you look at Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, the reason that movie was bad was because they cut out Amy Adams' whole subplot. I mean, the, the Ultimate Edition puts all of that back in. Um, and the, all critics agree that the the film is much better in the longer uh, Ultimate Edition form. Justice League, that was directed by Joss Whedon, and it's terrible, but that's not Zack Snyder's fault. Um, Nocturnal Animals, she's fine, and I, I don't love that movie, but I, I at least get it as an artistic enterprise. Uh, and Arrival's great. She's great in that. Sharp Objects, I like Sharp Objects a lot. I Did she win an Emmy for that? I, I can't remember. She was at least nominated. Um, Vice, you know, Vice is what Vice is. We, we all uh, we all have our, our issues or not with that. Um, and then Hillbilly Elegy, which, uh, again, I think she's I think she's OK. in I, the movie itself is just not very good. It just, it, you know, she wasn't done any favors there by Ron Howard or the script, I think, which does not focus on the right things. If but. you go through that list again, which you don't need to, like, repeat it all. But um, if you go through that list of films, it's just really interesting how many of those are films that if you just see the list of credits and maybe the source material, they look really good on paper. And it just sort of keeps happening that they don't quite work out. Some of them do. Arrival obviously is amazing. Um, I mostly like sharp objects, but it does have a sort of, there's there's some campy elements, some sort of, um, it's, a, it's a little bit uh, too self-consciously gothic-y at times, though I think it's basically a pretty good miniseries. Um, but the issue is that she keeps choosing these on paper projects, right? And and it they just like at least the last two really didn't work. Um and for some reason they like they're not always coming together here. Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna I'll defend Amy Adams's honor on this podcast. I like how Amy Adams. You, I, I how dare you besmirch um, Amy Adams, I, um, one of America's great actresses. I'm I like not Amy besmirching Adams. Amy Adams. I'm besmirching her agent or whoever else is helping her make these decisions. Again, I think all of these are perfectly reasonable decisions yeah, on is, paper. I don't know. I maybe she's well, maybe she's you know who's the, who's the 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 one the one similarity between all these. You know, projects. it's actually. It's actually interesting to think about um, if you switched Amy Adams and Kate Winslet in Mayor of Easttown. And so I know, uh, I think Alyssa has not seen that. Sonny, have you seen it? Yes, um, I've seen it. Right, so I finished this that series uh, this weekend. And, right, it's yet, like, the Amy Adams is a little younger, I think, but maybe they're about the same age. Um, like, they're, they're very close to, they're both in their mid-40s. Um, and... Kate Winslet just is sort of owns the screen in, in Mayor of Easttown. She's so great in it. Uh, it's a very good series. And it's just sort of like you can totally see a, like a, a version of that in which HBO went back to the, the Amy Adams well after Sharp Objects. and was like, we want you to anchor yet another kind of small town gothic mystery detective show. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think actually she would have been great in it. 
because the underlying story and the storytelling of the series was fundamentally very good. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the woman in the window? Alyssa. Thumbs down. Man. Peter. This movie is so bad. Thumbs down. I'm going to give it a thumbs down, but very, very, I don't know. I kind of want to give it a thumbs up just to be difficult uh, because I, I, there, I've watched it twice now. I watched this movie twice uh, and I don't do that a lot. What and are I, you doing I really, with your life, Sonny? I really, I really actually kind of like the absurdity of it. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that this movie will be rediscovered as a cult camp classic in uh, five to 10 years, but I wouldn't count it out. Wouldn't count it out. All right. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the best movie set in our favorite, or not-so-favorite, cities. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love this show, please complain to me on Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>